And would you please take your Bible and turn with me to Judges chapter 19. You know, there are horrible events that more or less define a time and a culture. And they're so shocking to us that it can't help but grab our attention. And it raises concern and it causes us to wonder what's going to become of us, what's going to become of this time and this culture. Even though we are desensitized to brutality because of violence in movies and the violence that we see on the nightly news, there are still those times where even in that context, we look at things and we say, wow, it's bad and it's getting worse. Well, that is really what we find in these closing chapters of the book of Judges. And what we see is there's a downhill slope throughout the book of Judges. It starts out pretty good with Joshua and the people who were in his generation, the way that they held to the Lord and looked to follow him. But then a steady decline that moves further and further away from God and that loses more and more focus on God. And really, these concluding chapters of the book of Judges, it's, it's a crescendo in that downhill slide. It brings us to the place to where we're shocked by what takes place. This morning, as we look at chapter 19, we want to see the descent that those who are living these depraved lives, devoid of good, devoid of seeking to follow God or to find God, how they, when they follow that path, go into deeper and deeper evil. A common theme that we've seen in these closing chapters and a common phrase is found at the first verse of the 19th chapter, and it says this, In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. Now, it's in that first part that I want us to, again, find the context of what's going on. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Again, as we've seen this through the book of Judges, we've seen that what this means is there is no authority. No one pays attention to anyone over them in authority whatsoever. But then there's another part of that formula that once again is assumed, although it's missing in this 19th chapter, and that is each man did what was right in his own eyes. You see, when we don't have God drawing the boundaries, when we don't recognize that God has established right and wrong, and we do just what we feel is right in our own heart, and that we look at and say, well, this seems right to me, when we follow that path, we go to very dark places. Now, in the story that we're looking at this morning, first of all, we're going to see that this doing what was right in their own eyes, this not responding to any kind of authority, begins with the story of another Levite. In chapters 17 and 18, we met one Levite, and he was a mercenary minister. Basically, he would go say whatever someone wanted to hear if they paid him enough, and he was glad to go and follow along whatever their lead might be. And he would tell them that God was in it as long as they paid him. 
Now we meet another Levite. And as we come to this story, we find that a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now what we're going to see as this story unfolds is this, doing what is right in your own eyes leads to disaster. And we find that this Levite, and bear in mind the Levites were supposed to be the spiritually elite in Israel. They were supposed to be the teachers, the leaders, the priests. But here is this Levite, and notice it says in that text that he took a concubine. Now, probably a lot of you are saying, okay, concubine, what does that mean? We don't have much of a context in our culture for a concubine. But in the ancient Near East, and as you read your scriptures, you'll see concubine repeated many times. When the Bible talks about concubines, it is in no way condoning these concubines. And as a matter of fact, when we look in scripture, we see God's plan for marriage does not include a wife and then several concubines that are sort of like secondary wives on the side that you can engage in marital relations with, sex with, and they have none of the rights of a wife, but they provide all of the benefits of a wife. Well, this is what this Levite had done, but that wasn't God's purpose in marriage. As a matter of fact, he spells out for us in the book of Genesis very clearly what his plan for marriage is, and it is this. Then God, or then the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then this commentary after Adam talks about this bone of bones relationship, this flesh of flesh relationship with the wife that God had given him, look at what it says. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The idea is one woman, one man. And they're coming into a relationship that God has ordained as a very holy thing, a very special thing, a very unique type of relationship. To move outside the bonds of that to take on multiple wives was outside of the purpose and the plan of God. And what is truly intriguing as we trace multiple stories in the Scripture about those who had taken concubines, what do we find? We find that none of those paths ended well. A lot of complications came into people's lives because they ignored God's teaching concerning marriage. And there were generational conflicts as a result of going down that path. Something else. The concubine was really viewed as property rather than as a person. And we're going to see that as this story unfolds as it pertains to this Levite and this concubine. God teaches that women have value as those created in the image of God. In Genesis 1.27 it says, So God created man in His own image, in the image of God He created him. And then look at this, male and female, He created them. There is this image of God that is a part of 
who women are. And when we look at that in the scriptural teaching, God values women. He created them. He uniquely designed them. They are precious to Him. And yet, when we look at the Middle Eastern culture, and particularly in the book of Judges, it goes from Deborah, who is respected and important as a judge in Israel, and it descends down to this nameless concubine of this nameless Levite. By the way, I believe they were nameless because they were representative of the nation as a whole and the spiritual state that they were in. So here is this nameless woman, devalued, viewed as personal property, and there's a breakdown in this blissful relationship. What we find as we look on in this text is this, verse 2. The concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. Now, let's pause here for a moment. There was a break in their arrangement. The ESV says she was unfaithful to him. There are other translations that render this she was angry with him. For instance, the New English translation says, however, she got angry at him and went home to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. Some of the ancient manuscripts like the Septuagint say angry as opposed to unfaithful. We don't know the exact reason, but here's the bottom line. There was a split in this relationship. The Levite lost his concubine. So what's he going to do now? How's he going to deal with the loss of this concubine? Look at what happens as the text continues. The concubine became angry with him or unfaithful to him, whichever it is, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for four months. So there's this separation in this arrangement. And she's in her father's house for four months. And then look at verse 3. Then her husband arose. And by the way, I would use air quotes around husband in this. Not exactly a husband, but at any rate, the husband rose and went after her. Now, doesn't that sound romantic? That's like one of those movies, right? Where The runaway bride goes away, and the man pursues her and goes to her house and calls her and says, oh, come into the relationship with me again. And it seems almost romantic, doesn't it? But understand, as this story unfolds, there's a word that's conspicuously absent from their relationship. And that word is love. He didn't pursue this concubine because he loved her. He pursued her because he was missing what she provided, a sexual relationship. He missed her because he viewed her as his property. And he was going to retrieve his property that had been lost to him. This is not a story of love. It's really a story of lust. And you know what we find? 
Lust will often masquerade as love. When I think through my years of ministry of the godly young women who have been led astray by someone who pursues them romantically and then entices them into a relationship, and they're not interested in them as a person, they're interested in them as an object. And I see the ruined lives that have to pick up the pieces after that relationship is done. It's heartbreaking. You hurt for them. This is what's going to happen, a little spoiler alert here, to this concubine. Her life will be destroyed because she pursued a relationship with this Levite, this professing spiritual man who had no spiritual understanding whatsoever. So, here he is. He he goes to the house in verse 3. Then her husband arose and went after her. Now, look at this. To speak kindly to her and bring her back. Isn't it amazing when somebody really wants something, they can be very charming. Remember a bank commercial a few years ago, and it had a voice that said to a woman, you're everything I've ever hoped for or dreamed of. And then they get married, and then it's, bring me a beer, baby, chop, chop, (laughs) right? And they were talking about teaser rates in banks, and how that would change. Well, I've seen that play out in personal lives and relationships. People can be very convincing when they want something. And that's where this Levite was, whispering sweet nothings into the ear of this girl. And so he goes there to speak to her, and he had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys And when he gets there, he must have had a great line because it says, she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. So, the story sounds pretty benign so far. Yeah, he's off the mark as far as marriage and all of that, but yeah, it's not too bad. We've seen worse as we've gone through the book of Judges, haven't we? Well, listen. It gets much, much worse. But before it gets worse, it almost gets comical when we come to verse 4. Every good story has comic relief. And in a sense, that's what we find right here in verses 4 through 10. This relationship between his quasi-father-in-law and the Levite was really strange. Now, Hospitality is an important part of the ancient Near Eastern culture, and it's such an important part that the Word of God even lays out responsibilities for hospitality to be shown by His people. But this concubine's father is just over the top. I mean, it's almost a little weird the way he has his hospitality, and as a matter of fact, it kind of weirds out the Levite that he is so weird about his hospitality. So let's look at what happens. So he goes into the father's house, and he stays with him three days. 
And so after the three days, they ate and they drank and they, ate, and they spent the night there. And on the fourth day, he arose early in the morning and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to the son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to him, be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. Now, let me explain how this is really coming across in plain English. What he's saying is, we've partied for three days. I'm not through yet. Let's party one more day and let's get drunk. When it says, let's be merry, he's not talking about let's have fun together and tell stories. He's saying, let's get hammered. That's really the idea that's coming across. And so, here is this Levite. And he says, okay, I'll bite. You've got me for one more night. And then, look at verse 7. When he arose, the man rose up. The father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning... And look at this. And the girl's father said, strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. It's too hot to go out this morning. Why don't you hang around a little bit longer? I don't know if this guy was just particularly lonely or what, but here he is pressing and pressing on this Levite, and he says, strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, His father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day is waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. You wanted to go on day three. Now here it is, day five. Oh, let's go for day six, right? And he says, Lodge here and let your heart be merry. In other words, let's get drunk again. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey to go home. Now, this sounds like kind of a humorous part of the story, but unfortunately it turns very dark. You see, the decision to not be responsible and leave early in the morning and travel for most of the day into a region he would have been familiar with was put aside so that he could pursue drinking and eating a little bit longer. The responsibility really rests with the Levite. He wasn't using sound wisdom. And what we're going to see is this. Sometimes when we kick wisdom to the curb, it can lead us into very terrible situations. And that's what happens here. You see, It was dangerous enough to travel in the Middle East during the day. But if you wait until afternoon, evening, and you're planning on traveling, no one traveled at night unless you had a huge caravan with you. There were wild animals, there were thieves, and there were worse. So here is this Levite, and to feed his own stomach... He decides to stay through another part of the day. But finally, he comes to his senses and he says, 
If I don't leave now, I'm probably not going to leave. I'm seeing a repeat cycle going on here, and i got to get out of this. But he left at probably the most unwise time that he could have possibly left. So it's going to lead to a pretty disastrous consequence. And that's what we find as we go on in this text. You see, when we come to the next part of this story, we find where this story is going to start to take a really bad turn. When we look at the 10th verse, the second half of it, after it says, but the man would not spend the night, it goes on to say this, he rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. Now, bear in mind, Jerusalem was not under Israelite control at this time. The original inhabitants of Jerusalem were still there. And so the Levite says, well, I can't stay in Jebus. They're not Israelites. We're going to go someplace safer. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go on to the areas in the tribe of Benjamin. And we're going to spend a night there because we can't trust those Jebusites. We can certainly trust the people in Benjamin. Now, again, what is conspicuously absent is this. No prayer. No, hey, let's seek God in this. Just, we're going to do what we think is best, and I think it would be best not to hang out with the Jebusites. Let's go over to Benjamin, and we'll hang out with the tribe of Benjamin. So this is what they do. They move through this area, and it says that when they had decided not to go, when, when they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, verse 11, and the servant said to his master, come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And the master said to him, we will not turn aside to the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gebiah. And he said to his young man, come let us draw near to one of the places and spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. And so they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside to go in and spent the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into the house to spend the night. Now, here's the amazing thing. Jebus would have been probably a place that would have at least showed them hospitality. But in Gibeah, their own people, they go there to find hospitality, and they're sitting in the town square, and no one offers them a place to stay. Now, in our culture, we would look at and say, well, what are they wanting? They didn't make any travel plans. What do they expect? They didn't make prearrangements, but understand, in the ancient Near East, you didn't have to, and you couldn't if you wanted to. You would go, and you would count on culturally the idea that your needs would be provided for. And so this is what they're doing. This is why they're going there. They're counting on the Lord, or excuse me, the people who were of the Lord, they thought, to provide a place for them to stay but it wasn't there. Then we come to the next part of the story. What we find as this story progresses is devaluing human life when we are knowing that it's 
there to, to, to be valued and honored because they're made in the image of God. Rather than valuing human life and doing what is right in our own eyes, we, we, we see that, again, disaster comes. And what we find initially is this denial of common courtesy. Have you noticed in our culture that the idea of courtesy has really gone out the window? We have a culture that is becoming more and more rude, less and less conventional in the way that you can expect to be treated when you're in a given area. What contributes to that? I would submit to you that as our culture departs from an understanding that we are created in the image of God and that we have value as human beings, that there will be a deepening in our rudeness. We will not see the value in human beings, and we will deny people the common courtesy that they should have as a fellow human being. In our culture, we're seeing people become angrier and angrier with one another, more and more hateful toward one another, and the way we interact with one another is so crass and so rude, sometimes it's completely alarming. Well, this is what happens here. When we look at the text and we see that they're there in Gibeah, they're waiting in the public square, nobody pays any attention to them, we find that the story gets worse as it goes on. Initially, it looks like it's going to get better because in verse 16 it says, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. And the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. And the men of the place were Benjamites, and he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going, and where do you come from? And then he said, we are passing from Bethlehem to Judah, to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I have come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord." but no one has taken me into his house. So here's this Levite complaining about how rude the people of Benjamin are. And then in verse 19, it says this, we have straw and feed for our donkey with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. And then we get a hint Look at this next sentence, only do not spend the night in the square. You ever watched those horror movies where, you know, don't go in that room, <laughs> don't stay there. It's a foreshadowing of something bad that's going to take place, and certainly that's something that we see here in this text. Because what we find is while this fellow traveler who has been staying in Gibeah is being kind and gracious to them, things are going to change and change rapidly. And that's when we come to verse 22. Depraved behavior shows this devaluing of human life. Look at what the text says. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. 
And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Now, here they are not talking about getting acquainted. They are talking about having homosexual relations with this man. It really evokes the scene that we find in Genesis with Sodom and Gomorrah. And it shows to us how these people in Gibeah had so departed from God's original order and God's command as far as marriage that they were engaged in a lifestyle that demonstrated they had no interest in doing what God wanted them to. They were going to do whatever they wanted to. And that involved forcing themselves on an unwilling man who had come into their community. You know, the Scripture is very clear that when we lose perspective on who God is, it takes us on a path that goes further and further away from God's created order. Leave your finger in Judges for a moment and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I was going to put it on the screen, but I, I would like us to see it right here in our texts. And what we find in Romans chapter 1, starting at the 18th verse, is this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what is it saying? It's saying that human beings, when they suppress what God has said is true in the way of revelation, are going to follow a certain path. And let's look at what that path is. Verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, they turned away from the God of revelation and they pursued their own path. But then it goes on in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, the created created their own God rather than realizing that God created them. But then it says this, verse 24, therefore God gave them over or God gave them up. In other words, God allowed them to pursue the path that they were following and look at where this path led. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, the, 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 excuse me, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those 
that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, with committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Now, let me say this. Our culture has moved in this direction. There will come a time that when you preach a sermon like what I'm sharing with you right now, you will probably be arrested. But the Word of God says that this kind of behavior, homosexual behavior, is outside of the scope of who God is and what God wants for us. Now, that being said, we as believers have a responsibility to reach the homosexual. We don't want to hate them. We don't want to do battle with them on a consistent basis. They need Christ. And we need to recognize that. But here in this community that we find in Gibeah, a community of people who proclaimed themselves to be the people of God, they had left what God had taught about right and wrong, and they pursued it to the point of seeking to rape this Levite. So then the story becomes, believe it or not, even worse. Because look at what happens. The man in the house, verse 23, went out to them and said, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, now look at this. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Talk about devaluing women. Satisfy your sexual desires on my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. He says, let me bring them out now, violate them. In other words, rape them. And do what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, we look at this and we think, that's awful, but it gets worse. Because in verse 25 it says, but the men would not listen to him. So the man, referring to the Levite, seized his concubine and made her go out to them. In other words, he grabs her by the arm, throws her out the door, and closes the door quickly behind him and yells, have your way with her. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. I can't even begin to imagine the living hell that this concubine went through. To be gang-raped by violent men and abused all night long. And then the story goes on and says, and as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman, verse 26, came and fell down at the door of the man's house where the master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning and when he opened the doors. Now, pause verse 27 for a moment. The master got up. She is being abused by all of these men and he's asleep. 
in the house. The same man that pursued her and said, oh, come away with me. I want to reestablish our relationship. You're important to me. He throws out to these violent men who gang rape her, and then he goes to bed and goes to sleep. Then he gets up. And as he's going out of the house, and she's lying at the door with her hands on the threshold, unknown to him, dead. Verse 28, it says, but he said to her, get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. Yeah, Mr. Sensitive, right? The man who had to have her threw her to the wolves. And then verse 29, and when he entered his house, he took a knife. Excuse me, skipped a part. Then he put her on his donkey, and the man rose up and went to his home. And when he entered his home, he took a knife. And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb from limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. We see such horrible, depraved behavior here, but it doesn't end just with her death. What we find is this, that he desecrated her corpse, and that showed a devaluation of her life. In the ancient Near East, when you wanted to honor somebody when they died, you buried them. But if you wanted to dishonor somebody because they had been dishonorable, you left them to the elements and you let animals tear them to pieces. Here is this Levite, a man who should have been a spiritual leader in Israel, and he allows his concubine to be sexually abused intensely. And then, as if that's not enough, he cuts her into 12 pieces and sends a piece of her body to each one of the tribes. He used her in life, and then he continued to use her in her death. And that was the state to which Israel had sunk. Why is this story included in Scripture? It's included in Scripture because People can do despicable things when they do what is right in their own eyes. When there is no God in the picture, when we do not look to the God of revelation, the God of truth, and we make up the rules as we go along, and we forget what God has established as right and wrong, this is the path that we can follow. And we see it in our culture. We see human trafficking, right? We see the abortion of millions of babies ripped to pieces in the womb. As we move further and further away from the image of who God is and what God says, this is the path that we find. What we need is a Savior. We need to be transformed and delivered from this. And thankfully, in Jesus Christ, God has provided that deliverance. We can find a relationship with the Father. Even with our sin, we can find deliverance. So my encouragement to you this morning is this. Turn to God. 
Don't operate under the assumption that I can do whatever I think is right and think that I can go through life unscathed. It's a slippery slope, and it's demonstrated right here in the Word of God where you wind up at the bottom of that slope. None of us want to go there. Father, thank You for this text. Thank You for the reminder that it is to us all that You are God, that You have a purpose and a plan that has been revealed in the Scripture, that apart from that purpose and plan of our salvation where You change us and deliver us from our sin, we could wind up just like this Levite in our thinking and in our behavior. Oh God, deliver us from that kind of thinking, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.